the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. February 25th, 2021, Culture Camp. It's a word we've used before, and I think we need to start familiarizing ourselves with it again. Using a basic definition, Wikipedia works. It's a German term referring to the conflict between the German imperial government and the Roman Catholic Church from the late 19th century, predominantly over the control of educational and ecclesiastical appointments. In contemporary socio-political discussion, the term culture camp is often used to describe any conflict between secular and religious authorities or deeply opposing values, beliefs between sizable factions within a nation, community, other groups. My favorite use of the word is its deployment by the recently departed Antonin Scalia in a famous dissent in a court case out of Colorado relating to civil and gay rights. He wrote, the court has mistaken a culture camp for a fit of spite. Culture wars, that's what we're talking about. You've heard me often quote Daniel Patrick Moynihan that culture is more important than politics. And you know Andrew Breitbart has a line about politics being downstream from culture. So we ignore it at our peril or blindsiding, and then it comes over us like a tsunami and too many are caught unawares or unprepared. Not us, not we cultural conservatives who have known the Moynihan and Breitbart central truths and have been in these trenches a long time. One might even call them social issues. Look around just the last few days. Ryan Anderson, a conservative scholar, had his book on children and transgender issues taken off sale from Amazon. Oh, it's hosted a lot of conservatives. And it's even allowing you to buy Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler and racialist crud from Ibrahim Kendi. All that's fine on Amazon. You can even get the sayings of Chairman Mao Zedong, death count millions. You just can't get Ryan Anderson dissenting on children making transgender decisions for themselves. You look at Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York. He's more than credibly accused of sexual harassment, as he is also being investigated by the U.S. Department of Justice. And ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, and NBC gave it zero coverage yesterday. Zero. Brett Kavanaugh was uncredibly accused by someone he never even met, and CNN put Michael Avenatti on television 122 times to discuss it. Avenatti's now in jail. We can be told and lectured to ad nauseum that conservatives or Donald Trump are engaged in a war against the media, violating constitutional norms, our threats constitute threats to civil liberties, and all the left has to do is just ignore the plank in their own eye as they declaim against the occasional specks in ours. The left and the media could care less about racism, sexism, sexual harassment, women's rights, you name it. 
And because they are so willing to politicize these human failings and societal ills, they're actually the true racists, sexists, harassers, and violators. Why? Because they don't actually care about those things as bads or ills or evils in themselves. They only care when the perpetrators are of one political party, giving a pass to those who may engage in it from their political party. They put politics in front of as more important than racism and all the other things like sexual harassment. Else, you'd have another story of the year, Andrew Cuomo, just as you would have had Joe Biden and Tara Reid last year, or Democratic Governor of Virginia Ralph Northam being seen in blackface or a KKK costume. We still don't know which because he's conveniently forgotten, but we knew it was one of the two. We would have had that story two years ago. Were Governor Ducey or Governor DeSantis or some other Republican, they'd be gone by now. To a Democrat or a liberal, it's a non-issue. Why? Again, because politics is more important than racism, sexism, and the parade of horribles we are lectured about when committed by the right. This selective prosecution is a terrible thing, a horrible thing, and it diminishes the toxicity of all those things like racism and sexual harassment, making it secondary or tertiary to political victory, political power. The left and the Democrats have thus vitiated a once serious set of important things, violations of civil rights. As they've diminished and attenuated other things we used to think toxic, like Nazism, like fascism. Good work, that. Actually horrible work, but you take my sarcasm in stride, I hope. If there's one thing I am most mad at the left about, it's just that, weakening, watering down, and diminishing the hateful toxicity of Hitlerism, Nazism, and racism, and the whole range of eugenics we thought ended at Nuremberg, but has now been revived and taught, promulgated as not so bad. Well, it is bad. It's the worst. And we have a nominee right now to be the Secretary of Health and Human Services who will not denounce abortion of children with Down syndrome. In a better day, that'd be front page news. In a better day, the name Lindsey Boylan would be better known than Christine Blasey Ford. But the accused is a Democrat in the case of the former. Which takes me to Smith College, the elite of the elite has some very well-known graduates, including Gloria Steinem and Nancy Reagan and Barbara Bush and Julia Child and Sally Quinn and obviously others. The New York Times today reports on this there. In the midsummer of 2018, Owumu Kanudi, a black student at Smith College, recounted a distressing American tale. She was eating lunch in a dorm lounge when a janitor and a campus police officer walked over and asked her what she was doing there. The officer, who could have been carrying a lethal weapon, left her near meltdown, Miss Canute wrote on Facebook, saying that this encounter continu- continued a year-long pattern of harassment at Smith College. All I did was be black, Miss Canute wrote. It's outrageous that some people question my being at Smith College and my existence overall as a woman of color. The college's president, Kathleen McCartney, offered profuse apologies and put the janitor on leave. This painful incident reminds us of the ongoing legacy of racism and bias, the president wrote, in which people of color are targeted while simply going about the business of their ordinary lives. 
New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, they all picked up the story of a young female student at Smith harassed by white workers. The American Civil Liberties Union took the student's case and said she was profiled for eating while black. Less attention was paid three months later when a law firm hired by Smith College to investigate the episode found no evidence of bias. Miss Canute was determined to have eaten in a deserted dorm that had been closed for the summer. The janitor had been encouraged to notify security if he saw unauthorized people there. The officer, like all campus police, was not carrying a lethal weapon. He was unarmed. Smith College officials emphasized reconciliation and healing after the incident. In the months to come, they announced a raft of anti-bias training for all staff, a revamped and more sensitive campus police force and the creation of dormitories, as demanded by Ms. Knute and her ACL, ACLU lawyer, set aside for black students and other students of color. But no offer of apology or amends to the workers whose lives were gravely disrupted by the students' accusation ever came. That was not part of the reconciliation and healing. In other words, the reconciliation and healing was all about doing a series of things, including new dormitories, over an event that didn't happen. The truth is, student workers were not supposed to use the Tyler Cafeteria, which was reserved for a summer camp program for young children. Jackie Blair, a veteran cafeteria employee, mentioned that to Mrs. Canute when she saw her getting lunch there, but then she just decided to drop it. Staff members dance carefully around rule enforcement for fear students will lodge complaints against the staff. We used to joke, don't let a rich student report you, because if you do, you're gone, said a janitor. Miss Canute ignored the rule in place. A janitor who was in his 60s and poor of sight was emptying garbage cans when he noticed that she was in that closed lounge. All involved with the summer camp were required to have state background checks, and campus police have advised staff it was wisest to call security rather than confront strangers on their own if they saw unauthorized people there. The janitor, who worked at Smith for 35 years, dialed security. We have a person sitting there laying down in the living room, the janitor told the dispatcher, according to the transcript. I didn't approach her or anything, but seems out of place. The janitor had noticed Mrs. Canute's skin color but made no mention of it to the dispatcher. Miss Canute was in the shadows. He was not sure, the janitor, if he was looking at a man or a woman, so Miss Canute later accused the janitor of misgendering her as well. On and on this went. Janitors who were making $11 an hour were ruined by a privileged student putting up $78,000 a year to attend Smith and disregard the rules everyone else had to abide by. Turns out there's a lot of Nick Sandmans in our world and a lot of privilege. It just isn't always white. But when invoked can ruin good, hard-working non-racists who are just trying to do their job. This is what happens when you make a fascination and scruples of color and privilege. And who will stand up for this in inequality? Do we even care about it? We should. I'm Seth. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by my favorite product ever, Balance of Nature. I can't say enough good things about it. I take it every single day. It has kept me and family and friends well for over a year now. Boosts your health, energy, and immunity. So important. One Daily Dose gives you tens of thousands of vital nutrients from all natural vine-ripened fruits and veggies that are picked at the peak of ripeness. No sugar. No chemicals, no GMOs, third-party tested for all kinds of impurities and metals. It's a really fantastic product you just take once a day, and you get with that once a day 10 servings of fruits and vegetables. It's great for you, and it's good for you to support Balance of Nature as well as they support this programming. So check it out at balanceofnature.com. They have free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. You can also call them at 800-246-8751. Make sure, again, to use discount code BALANCE. Anita Dunn is a name that just doesn't seem to go away. She is a top Biden. What? What do you got for me? Oh, okay. That's, uh, that's on Andrew Cuomo, though. That's okay. We'll do that. You said something to me earlier. That threw me as well. You've been throwing me all day. No, that's not true. But you said I hunt. No, but you said um, I stitched a clown suit on you. What did you mean by that? I've never. Did you invent it? Is that a new saying? No, I picked it up along the way. What's it mean? It means I look silly. I made you look silly. Made me look silly. I stitched a clown suit on you. Okay. What did I do? I didn't mean to. Oh, public you, you humiliation is a terrible. I don't. I hate. Segment would be. Okay. Well, public humiliation is terrible. So I retract any public humiliation and apologize. It's a terrible thing to to embarrass someone. Anita Dunn is a name that will not go away. Should have in the Obama administration. She was an Oma, uh, the Obama communications director. She is a senior Biden campaign official and now a senior White House assistant. To Joe Biden, and she's quoted in a book that's coming out, I think, next week, saying that the best thing that ever happened to Joe Biden was the coronavirus. That's a direct quote. The best thing that ever happened to Joe Biden was the coronavirus. Now, the reason she should have gone away years ago is she, um, in the Obama administration, said that Mao Zedong was one of her favorite philosophers. You don't say that about someone with tens of millions of deaths on their hands. Would anyone ever say it's a, it's a fascinating thing to me? These communists with blood counts so much higher than what we think of as the worst human rights criminal in history, Adolf Hitler, they just get passes. It's not the same thing to um, say positive things about Stalin or Mao Zedong as it is to about Hitler. None of it is acceptable. All of it is horrible. All of it should be seen as horrific. But I've never understood why people with tens and tens and tens of millions of deaths on their hands, Mao Zedong, People who praise that get passes, whereas people who might, you know, no one, no one who would ever be respected, says positive things about Adolf Hitler, um, are sent to Coventry. Rightfully so. They both should be. Anyway, she says positive things about Mao Zedong in the Obama administration. She's back in the Biden administration. She's now quoted in a book saying the best thing that ever happened to Joe Biden was the coronavirus. Now, what she means is, is, is the quiet part out loud that so many of us know. Obviously, which is that 
were it not for the coronavirus, it's entirely likely the election would not have been so close and that it would have been the landslide people expected um, for Donald Trump. That having been said, who says anything about the coronavirus being the best thing to ever happen to someone when you have the president lacrimoniously talking about the missing people at the breakfast table, when you have the teens? Yeah, this story, okay, this gets me, this, this really gets my goat. I, I have to tell you, this really angers me. New York Times uh, two days ago, headline, for some teens, it's been a year of anxiety and trips to the ER. Yes, it has. The subtitle, during the pandemic, suicidal thinking is up and families find that hospitals can't handle adolescence in crisis. Hello? Coffee? Smell? How about February 24th, yesterday? Liberal columnist, New York Times, Nick Kristoff. School closures have failed America's children. School to, this is now this week. People are writing about this at the New York Times. How about how about this column from um, May of last year at Fox News titled Coronavirus in Schools We're Doing More Harm Than Good to Our Nation's Children? H.G. Wells once said human history becomes more and more a race between education and catastrophe. Closing our schools out of fear of COVID-19 is just such a catastrophe. And it goes on to detail what will happen to our nation's children. This was last April. Sorry, last April. Fox News op-ed. Last April. It was perhaps understandable that at the beginning of the outbreak, with predictions of millions dead, we quickly and immediately put a pause on our nation's school. But as the evidence became clear that children were far more affected by other and worse problems for them than the coronavirus, the schools should have opened up. The closings have caused and will cause even more social damage for a great many of these children and their parents than the coronavirus ever would, all to protect children from a disease that will not directly affect them. Yes, children can be carriers and transmitters of the virus, but that was and is true of the flu as well, and it is increasingly apparent that children not only are more severely affected by the flu than the coronavirus, but they can transmit it more easily as well. And we never close schools because of the flu. As one study from the British Medical Journal put it, quote, children have not played a substantive role in inner household or other transmissions of the coronavirus, close quote. Young children do not get infected and do not transmit the virus, said Daniel Koch, chief infectious disease uh, preventionist for the country of Switzerland. On and on this op-ed goes in April, and it was condemned, routinely condemned. But today, Nick Kristoff writes, school closures have failed America's children. And a new story in the New York Times two days before that. For some teens, it's been a year of anxiety and trips to the ER. By the way, the authors of that Fox News op-ed, William Bennett and myself. Sometimes the price for being right is appearing to be wrong at the time. But I think apologies are owed to our nation's children, not me and Bill. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. We sometimes try and explain interesting and non-largely covered things here, particularly in the state of Arizona. And this thing came up in having to do with the practice of law uh, in Arizona. And um, it was it, it's something that, that I think could actually revolutionize not only 
practice of law, but the delivery of legal services with some interesting innovations. And one of the people who has been quoted a lot about this is Andy Hallaby, Andrew Hallaby. He's a partner at Snell and Wilmer here in Phoenix. Uh, people who have listened to this show know I just think the world of Snell and Wilmer. They're not a, 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 in any way, shape, or form uh, a, an advertiser or anything like that on the show. They do represent me on a few different in a few different areas. But I've known Andy Hallaby for a bit, and uh, I just thought it would be worthwhile, kind of letting our audience know a little bit about this interesting rule change that came down from our state Supreme Court that could affect the practice of law and the delivery of legal services. Andy, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be here, Seth. Thank you. You bet. First-time guest you are. I always ask this of first-time guests. Tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, a little autobiography, where you grew up and how you came to be doing what you're doing, and then we'll get into this, I think, really interesting, uh, innovative thing the Supreme Court gave us. Well, sure. Th- thank you, Seth. So I, I am a, uh, uh, I've lived in Arizona since the mid-1990s, came here from uh, the Midwest, and uh, have been practicing uh, law um, in a large firm ever since, uh, devoting my practice largely to um, intellectual property matters, but also lawyering matters. I've been the ethics chair of my firm for many years. And so uh, I was paying close attention when this uh, new law uh, was uh, enacted by the Arizona Supreme Court last year, and, and I think your lead-in was just spot on. I think this could really revolutionize the way um, the legal business is uh, is offered to consumers in Arizona. Good, good, good. So tell us about this new law and why it is significant. Sure, sure. So the 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 term in the in the law is alternative business structure or ABS, and all an ABS is is a business that can provide legal services, but is owned in whole or in part by non lawyers. Now, the, the rules governing the practice of law are established state by state. There isn't federal regulation of the practice of law. But uniformly, since before the last pandemic, so before the Spanish flu uh, uh, pandemic of 1918, the states have said that only lawyers can own law practices. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to practice law or have a law firm, but wanted to invest in, say, innovations designed to improve client service or technology, the one thing you could not do was go seek investment capital. Right. Now, in Arizona, you can. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, this could have effect to people, I should say consumers, people who need lawyers, people who need other services, too, if this thing works out, right? This could expand beyond the practice or the need of lawyers or law, right? Well, that, well that's, exa- that's exactly right. And, and you know, the Arizona Supreme Court, which deserves accolades for its courage in, in finally breaking through uh, among the 50 states and, and allowing non-lawyer ownership of law firms, was just what you said at the opening. Um, consumers can't afford, in many instances, the legal services right. they, they need, right. you know, family law, small contract disputes. So one of the things that this new law is going to allow is uh, folks who provide different kinds of professional services, say accounting, tax, estate planning, to actually be under one roof in one business with lawyers serving 
the customers or clients who need those services. And this could, in fact, include – you said estate planning. We're talking wills and trusts and things like that. We're talking uh, family law. So a lot of, a lot of um, consumers are familiar with a lot of online, quote-unquote, do-it-yourself legal services, Zoom and other ones. Uh, does this affect that sort of practice? Does it have the potential to expand those kinds of business opportunities? It, it does. It does. I mean, the, the, the online providers are going to benefit from the enactment of this law because one of the things that they had to be concerned about before was whether they would be accused of engaging in the unauthorized practice of law in Arizona and any other state if the services they provide were practicing law, as, as that's defined in the Arizona Supreme Court rules. Um, but weren't weren't doing it through a lawyer admitted to practice in Arizona. Now they have a smoother path to provide those services. Others that I think are likely to take advantage of the new law are law firms that just want outside investment innovation. Sure. You know the the, the theme. What, what the Arizona Supreme Court believed, I believe, is that opportunity plus investment equals innovation. Right. That that all they need to do is give give lawyers and non lawyers the chance to you know, gain efficiencies by working together, seek investment capital for innovation, and consumers inevitably are going to benefit. It's, it's sort of been Arizona's history and tradition of innovation and providing services of benefit to the public by removing or reducing or at least changing regulatory constraints. We're talking to Andrew Hallaby. Andy is at, uh, is a partner at Snell & Wilmer here in town. One last question, Andy, and you correct me if my presumption is wrong. It's been a long time since I had to study any of this, but it seemed to You're me, if well. me- <laughs> memory serves that um, that the rule where lawyers had to be owners of law practices had to do with managing misconduct. Does something like this expand opportunities for lawyer misconduct, or do you think it actually could have a beneficial or positive impact on le- legal and you know, lo- I, I lawyerly misconduct? Be- Good question. I, I don't anticipate there being... Uh, more misconduct for several reasons. Um, number one, lawyers and now in Arizona ABSs are still very uh, heavily regulated in the way that lawyers licensed to practice law are. Um, number two, um, this kind of law has been on the books in England and Wales and Australia for several years, and there, there hasn't been any substantial evidence of, of additional misconduct. And, you know, finally... I think that um, the rules of professional conduct, you know, the Arizona Supreme Court changed them a little bit to allow this, but there are still multiple rules of professional conduct that lawyers have to follow to make sure, sure. that they exercise independent judgment. Sure, on none of that is changing. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's not changing at all. Not None of that. Well, I'm always interested in expanding the ability to get more services to more people and innovation. And Arizona has been innovative on a lot of fields, education to be one of them. I'm glad it's doing it with law, too, Andy. And I, I was just really glad you could spend a few moments talking about it. Um, people want to get in touch with you or talk more about it. They can go to the website, swlaw.com. That's Snell Wilmer. Swlaw.com is, is Andy Hallaby's uh, firm's website. Andrew, listen, thank you. I, I, I really do appreciate your enlightening us on this. Great, great pleasure, Seth. Enjoy the rest of your day. You betcha, sir. You betcha. I am Seth Leibson. I was glad to be able to get that out to you. 602-508-0960. That's 602-508-0960. And we will be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh, this is uh, this is a good thing that just crossed over the transom. You all remember Rayleigh Klein? She's the student at ASU that got fired for linking to a New York Post story about a police officer shooting. She got fired as a student as being the uh, news uh, news director at the ASU radio station. She um, was on the show talking about that. And she sued ASU, and she just tweeted, I'm happy to announce we've reached a resolution with ASU for events that took place in September. I am proud to have stood up, fought back, and eventually won. College is supposed to be a place of free thought and free speech for all, regardless of political or personal beliefs. The university did not stand up for those ideals and instead let the culture of harassment dictate the success of those who challenge them. While cancel culture is alive and well across America's college campuses and agendas continue to be pushed, I am proud to stand with a group of young patriots who will not let these actions endure. We will continue to speak the truth, challenge norms, and encourage free thought all unapologetically. While I am grateful to settle this suit, my work is far from done, and I look forward to the opportunities ahead to continue to fight for free speech across the nation. Good for Ray Lee Klein. There's probably no better education she received from ASU than what she went through, and it's a sorry state of affairs that she had to go through it and be fired and be held up to ridicule for having the temerity of being a news director who linked to a newspaper story, a New York Post story about a police shooting. Turns out the story that she linked to was probably more accurate than the mainstream media narrative about it in the first place. She got fired, and she sued, and she won. Good for her. We will have her on next week to talk more about that. My thesis has been, I, 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 you know, I'm assuming Rayleigh Klein herself may have been a conservative already, but you look at what's going on at Smith College and other colleges across the country, the kind of stuff Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla uh, detailed in their movie No Safe Spaces. It has been my theory that there are two things that are going to help evangelize or proselytize for the conservative movement. One of them will be when liberals, good liberals, not, not lefty crazies, but good liberals who think they're just doing right by humanity, find themselves canceled, find themselves censored, uh, like uh, the staffer at Smith College. I, I think they're going to find, wait, who are my allies here? Who's standing up for for, for, for for normative absolutes like free speech? Well, it's not the left. It's the conservative movement. They believe in the letting it rip. They believe that facts are more important than feelings and that truth is arrived at through open debate and the scientific method. Meanwhile, the left says that we're anti-science. No, they are. They are. Political science is a science, too. So is the scientific method. And you don't get it without debate and discussion and investigation. So I thought that would be one area where we would find converts to the conservative movement. And I think the other is going to have to do with small business owners. Uh, who's, who's our restaurateur in Southern California, Bill, whose name I always forget and you always remember? Angela Marsden. Thank you, Angela Marsden. Uh, people like that who, for all probability, have been, you know, basically apolitical or liberal Democrats because they live in California and that just tends to be the way it is, finding their businesses shut down by fiat for no reason with the hypocrisy of what Marsden went through where she couldn't have outdoor dining, but Hollywood could put a 
movie set next to her restaurant and have outdoor dining for its actors and staffers to add insult to injury, I think they're going to become the kinds of people that will understand that the conservative cause, the Republican Party, is not only the cause of individual freedom, but the cause of common sense. The cause of common sense. And I think we're going to get converts that way. We got converts in the 80s over a lot of different things, probably more than anything over foreign policy. More than anything over foreign policy. Think of two prominent conservatives, Gene Kirkpatrick and Bill Bennett. When they joined the Reagan administration, they were Democrats. When they left, they were Republicans. And what they left on was the issue of foreign policy, that the Democrats had become soft on communism, or as Jack Kemp liked to say, soft on democracy, that the Democrats had appeased too many Cuban revolutionary movements, the Democrats thwarted too many anti-communist efforts, and that it was just too much to take. I remember when Bill Bennett said that when the Democratic Senate voted down aid to the freedom fighters, I was done. I was done. How do you not fight for freedom? How do you not fight against communism? How do you not help aid the long twilight struggle that John Kennedy spoke of and that we were engaged in? So it was foreign policy primarily in the 80s. I think it's going to be issues having to do with speech and economic liberty and freedom and common sense in the aughts. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Jack is in Phoenix. Hello, Jack. Hello, Seth. Thanks for taking the call. Surely. I've, uh, you know, got some snippets on this Equality Act, and it, to me it sounds like there's a direct attack on you know, religious freedom, and it seems like it's one way. You've got to take uh, what I believe at face value, and I don't have to listen to what you believe. And I wanted to get your perspective on what you think about this. Well, I'll tell you, this is the um, – you're speaking about the, the Equality Act, which would uh, put sexual orientation and gender ID into uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Is this what we're talking about? Yes, sir. Yeah, adding gender and, 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 and sexual orientation to uh, – what was originally religious and uh, racial uh, discrimination protections. Well, I'll tell you what my first concern is, Jack. My first concern is what the 1964 Act turned into when we were promised by such sponsors as Hubert Humphrey, uh, who was then vice president, that it would not be um, an act demanding quotas that it would not be an act that demanded that corporations hire certain numbers and levels of populations uh, hitherto uh, discriminated against. It's exactly what it became. It became, yes. uh, it became an act of uh, race norming. It became an act of counting by race, particularly less so religion, but a little bit. And I worry about what that's going to mean now next. I worry about that, um, and I worry about the carvings out to religious institutions that have typically been protected under the Act and whether we're going to see that being watered down and vitiated too. Well, I worry about it. I'm worried about it. Um, I, uh, I thought we were getting the 1964 Civil Rights Act back on its original intent through some Supreme Court litigation. Um, I'm worried that we're going to be turning in the other direction. So um, I'm concerned about it. It's obviously one of those things that's 
very difficult to uh, vote against and go on record against because no one wants to be seen as discriminatory. But things are moving so fast now, and uh, it just seems that it just seems that, that protections and guarantees and more sureties about um, about affirmative action programs that mean preferences and hiring norms and numbers and quotas are, uh, are 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 part and parcel of these things. And of course, they're not. But that would be my first concern. Okay. Well, we we share that concern. Yeah. It's uh. It's it's it's. It's an issue that's so odd. You know, I, I think a lot of us came to terms uh, over time, including Barack Obama, you know, including Barack Obama on, on, on certain issues having to do with gay rights. A lot of us came to terms with that uh, in a way that 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 might have been a little bit long overdue. But, you know, it's one thing to go from that to the new debate du jour, which is childhood transgender rights and encouragement and then of course normalization it's just a different thing altogether and i think it's going to prove to be an assault on society and civilization we're going to regret i really do i'm seth leapson we'll be right back